Welcome to tape number 8 of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many, re- many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, is on the web at www. SWRB.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. And now to the reading of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, which we pray you find to be a great blessing and which we hope draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing with the reading of chapter 20, the guidance of God. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understand, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, Ephesians 5:17. From this verse, it is clear that both the right and the duty of the Christian to know the Lord's will for him. God can neither be pleased nor glorified by his children walking in ignorance or proceeding blindly. Did not Christ say to his beloved disciples, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. John 15.15 If we are in the dark as to how we ought to proceed in anything, it is clear that we we are living far below our privileges. No doubt the majority of our readers will give hearty assent to these statements, but the question which concerns most of them is, how are we to ascertain the Lord's will concerning the very details of our lives? First, notice this exhortation that we should be understanding what the will of the Lord is, is preceded by, wherefore be ye not unwise. That word, unwise, does not signify bare ignorance or lack of knowledge. Otherwise, the two halves of the verse would merely express the same thought in its negative and positive forms. No, the word unwise there means lacking in common sense, or be not ye foolish. Nor does the word foolish signify no more than it does now, now does in common speech. In Scripture, the fool is simply is not simply one who is mentally deficient, but is the man who leaves God out of his life, who acts independently of him. This must be borne in mind as we arrive at the meaning of the second half of Ephesians 5.17. Observe that Ephesians 5.17 opens with the word wherefore, which points back to what immediately precedes. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil, verses 15 and 16. 
Unless those exhortations are prayerfully and diligently heeded, it is impossible that we understand what the will of the Lord is. Unless our walk be right, there can be no spiritual discernment of God's will for us. This brings us back to the central thought. Our daily walk is to be ordered by God's word. In proportion as it is so, we will be kept in his will and preserved from folly and sin. A good understanding have all that, all they that have that, I'm sorry. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Psalm 111 verse 10. A good understanding may be defined as spiritual instinct. We all know what is meant by the instinct with which the Creator has endowed animals and birds. It is an inward faculty which prompts them to avoid danger and moves them to seek that what is for their well-being. Man was endowed originally with a similar instinct, though of a far superior order to that of lower creatures. But at the fall, he, to a large extent, lost it. As one generation of depraved beings followed another, their instinct has become more and more weakened until now we see many conducting themselves with far less intelligence than the beast of the field. They rush madly to destruction, which the instinct of the brutes would avoid. They act foolishly, yes, madly, contrary even to common sense in conducting their affairs and concerns without discretion. At regeneration, God gives his elect the spirit of a sound mind, 1 Timothy 1.7, but that spirit has to be cultivated. It needs training and direction. The necessary instruction is found in the word. From that word we learn what things will prove beneficial to us and what will be injurious, what things to seek after and what to avoid. As the precepts of Scripture are reduced to practice by us, and as its prohibitions and warnings are heeded, we are able to judge things in their true light. We are delivered from being deceived by false appearances. We are kept from making foolish mistakes. The closer we walk by the word, the more fully this will prove to be the case with us. A good judgment or spiritual instinct will form in us so that we conduct our affairs discreetly and adorn the doctrine we profess. So highly does the the saint prize this spiritual instinct or sound mind that he prays, Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I have believed thy commandments. Psalm 119.66 He realizes it can only be increased as he is divinely taught by the Spirit applying the word to his heart, opening to him its meaning, bringing it to his remembrance when needed, and enabling him to make a proper use of it. But note that in this prayer the petition is backed up with a plea, for I have believed in thy commandments. Believed is not merely an intellectual assent, but approved with the affections. Only when that is the case is such a petition sincere. There is an inseparable connection between these two things. Where God's judge, where, excuse me, when, where God's commandments are loved by us, we can count upon Him to teach us good judgment. As we said, the fool is not the mentally deficient, but the one who leaves God out of his thoughts and plans, 
who cares not whether his conduct pleases or displeases him. The fool is a godless person. Contrarywise, the wise in Scripture are not the highly intellectual or the brilliantly educated, but those who honestly seek to put God first in their lives. God honors those that honor him, 1 Samuel 2.30. He gives them good judgment. True, it is not acquired all in a day, but here a little and there a little. Yet the more completely we surrender to God, the more the principles of his word regulate our conduct, the swifter will be our growth in spiritual wisdom. In saying that this good judgment is not acquired all at once, we do not mean that a whole lifetime has to be lived before it becomes ours, though this is often the case with many. Some who have been converted but a few years are often more spiritual, godly, and possess more spiritual wisdom than those who were converted years before. By treasuring up in his mind the doctrines, precepts, promises, exhortations, and warnings of Scripture, and by diligently comparing himself with the rule by which he is to walk, the Christian grows into a habitual frame of spiritual wisdom. He acquires a gracious taste which enables him to judge of right and wrong with a degree of readiness and certainty, as a musical ear judges sounds, so that he is rarely mistaken. Mistaken, He who has the word ruling in his heart is influenced by it in all his actions. Because the glory of God is the great aim before him, he is not permitted to go far wrong. Moreover, God has promised to show himself strong on behalf of the one whose heart is perfect towards him. Second Chronicles 16.9 he does this by regulating his providences and causing all things to work together for his good. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, the whole body shall be full of light. Matthew 6.22 The language is figurative, yet its meaning is not difficult to ascertain. What the eye is to the body, the heart is to the soul. For out of the heart are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23 the actions of the body are directed by the light received from the eye. If the eye is single, that is, sound and clear, perceiving objects as they really are, then the whole body has light to direct its members, and the man moves with safety and comfort. In like manner, if the heart is undivided, set on pleasing God in all things, then the soul has clear vision, discerning the true nature of things, forming a sound judgment of their worth, choosing wisely and directing itself prudently. When our heart is right with God, the whole soul is endowed with spiritual wisdom so that there is full light for our path. But if thine eye be evil, the whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness? Matthew 6.23 Here's the solemn contrast. If the vision of our body, bodily eye, is defective, a cataract dimming it, then nothing is seen clearly. All is confusion. The man stumbles as if in the dark, as if continually liable to lose his way and run into danger. In like manner, where the heart be not right with God, where sin and self dominate, the whole soul is under the reign of darkness. 
in consequence the judgment is blinded so that it cannot rightly discern between good and evil cannot see through the guild of Satan's baits and thus is fatally deceived by them the very light which is in fallen man namely his reason is controlled by his lust so great is his darkness the verses we have just considered were spoken by Christ immediately after what he had been saying about the right laying up of treasure Matthew 6 19 to 21 it was as though he both anticipated and answered a question from his disciples if it is so important for us not to lay up treasures in earth but rather treasures in heaven why is it that the that men commonly regarded as the shrewdest and considered to be the most successful seek after earthly treasures rather than heavenly to this Christ replied marvel not at this they cannot see what they are doing they are like blind men gathering pebbles supposing that they are valuable diamonds Christ casts much light on what we now see on every side they who have set their hearts on things of time and sense are but spending their energies for that which will stand them in no stead when they come to their deathbeds. They labor for that which satisfieth not, Isaiah 55, 2. The reason they conduct themselves so insanely, pursuing so eagerly the pleasures of this world, which will bear nothing but bitter regrets in the world to come, is because their hearts are evil. God has no real place in their thoughts, and so he gives them up to the spirit of madness. There must be the single eye, the heart set upon pleasing God, if the soul is to be filled with heavenly wisdom, which loves, seeks, and lays up heavenly things. That wisdom is something which no university can impart. It is from above, James 3.17. It should be noted that our Lord's teaching upon the single eye with the whole body full of light and the evil eye with the whole body full of darkness is immediately followed with no man can serve two masters for he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6.24 This is at once this at once establishes the meaning of the preceding verses. Christ had been speaking in a figure of setting the Lord supremely before the heart, which necessarily involves casting out worldly things and fleshly considerations. Men think to compound with God and their lust, God and mammon, God and worldly pleasures. No, says Christ. God will have all or nothing. He that serveth him must serve him singly, singly and supremely. Are you willing to pay the price to have that divine light on your path? We have not attempted to enter into specific details and state how a person is to act when some difficult or sudden emergency confronts him. Rather, we have sought to treat of basic principles and thoroughly establish them. Though it might satisfy curiosity, it would serve no good purpose for a teacher to explain an intricate problem in higher mathematics to a student who had not already mastered the elementary rules of arithmetic. So it would be out of place to explain how particular cases or circumstances are to be handled before we have presented those rules with which must guide our general walk. 
Thus far, we have dealt with two main things, the absolute necessity of being controlled by the Word of God without, and the having a heart within which is single to God's glory and set upon pleasing Him. If we are to have the light of heaven on our earthly path, a third consideration must now engage our, our attention, the help of the Holy Spirit. But at this point, we must need to be on our guard lest we lapse into a vague mysticism on the one hand or become guilty of wild fanaticism on the other. Many have plunged into the most foolish and evil courses under the plea that they were prompted by the Spirit. No doubt they were prompted by some Spirit, but most certainly not by the Holy Spirit. He never prompts anything contrary to the Word. Our only safety is to impartially bring our inward pulses to the test of Holy Writ. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Romans 8. 14. This divine guide is perfectly acquainted with the path God has ordained for each celestial traveler. He is fully conversant with all its windings and narrowness, its intricacies and dangers. To be led by the Spirit is to be under His government. He perceives our temptations and weaknesses, knows our aspirations, hears our groans, and marks our strugglings after holiness. He knows when to supply a check administer a rebuke, apply a promise, sympathize with a sorrow, strengthen a wavering purpose, confirm a fluctuating hope. The sure promise is he will guide you into all truth, John 16:13. He does so by regulating our thoughts, affections, and conduct, by opening our understandings to perceive the meaning of Scripture applying it in power to the heart, enabling us to appropriate and reduce it to practice. Each time we open the sacred volume, let us humbly and earnestly seek the aid of him who inspired it. Note that Romans 8.14 opens with 4. The apostle introduces a confirmation of what he had affirmed in the previous verses. They who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit, verse 4, they who mind the things of the Spirit, verse 5. They who through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, verse 13, are the ones who are led by the Spirit. As the Spirit of holiness, his aim is to deepen the imprint of the restored image of God in the soul to increase our happiness by making us more holy. Thus he leads to nothing but would but what is sanctifying. The Spirit guides by subduing the power of indwelling sin by weaning us from the world, by maintaining a tender conscience in us, by drawing out the heart of Christ, by causing us to live for eternity. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. Proverbs 3, 5-6 Note the order. The promise at the close of the passage is conditional upon our meeting three requirements. First, we are to have full confidence in the Lord. The Hebrew word verb for trust here literally means to lean upon. It conveys the idea of one who is conscious of feebleness turning unto and resting upon a stronger one for support. To trust in the Lord signifies to count upon him in every emergency to look to him for the supply of every need 
to say with the psalmist, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, Psalm 23.1. It means that we cast all our cares upon him, draw from him strength hour by hour, and thus prove the sufficiency of his grace. It means for the Christian to continue as he began. When we first cast ourselves upon him as lost sinners, we abandoned all our doings and relied upon his abounding mercy. But what is meant by trust in the Lord with all thine heart? First, the giving to God our undivided confidence, not looking to any other for help and relief. Second, turning to him with childlike simplicity. When a little one trusts, there is no reasoning but a simple taking of the parent's words at face value, fully assured that he will make good what he said. He does not dwell on the difficulties in the way, but expects the fulfillment of what is promised. So it should be with us and our Heavenly Father's words. Third, it means with our affections going out to him, love believeth all things, hopeth all things. 1 Corinthians 13.7 Thus, to trust in the Lord with all our heart is love's reliance in believing, dependence, and expectation. The second requirement is, and lean not unto thine own understanding, which means we are not to trust in our own wisdom or rely upon the dictates of human reason. The highest act of human reason is to disown its sufficiency and bow before the wisdom of God. To lean unto our own understanding is to rest upon a broken reed, for it has been deranged by sin, Yet many find it harder to repudiate their own wisdom than they do to abandon their own righteousness. Many of God's ways are past finding out. To seek to solve the mysteries of providence is the finite attempting to comprehend the infinite. Philosophizing about our lot or reasoning about our circumstances is fatal to rest of soul and peace of heart. Third, in all thy ways acknowledge him. This means, first, we must ask God's permission for all that we do and not act without his leave. Only then do we conduct ourselves as dutiful dutiful children and respectful servants. It means, second, that we seek God's guidance in every undertaking, acknowledging our ignorance and owning our complete dependence upon him. In everything by prayer and supplication, Philippians 4.6, Only so is God's lordship over us owned in a practical way. It means, third, seeking God's glory in all our ways. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 If we only did so, how very different many of our ways would be. If more frequently we paused and inquired, Will this be for God's glory? we would be withheld from much sinning and folly with all its painful consequences. It means, fourth, to seek God's blessing upon everything. Here is another simple and sufficient rule. Anything on which I cannot ask God's blessing is wrong, and he shall direct thy paths. Meet the three conditions just mentioned, and this is the sure consequence. The need to be directed by God is real and pressing. Left to ourselves, we are no better off than a rudderless ship or an auto without a steering wheel. It is not without reason that the Lord's people are so often termed sheep, for no other creature is so apt to stray or has such a propensity to wander. The the Hebrew word for direct means to make straight. We live in a world where everything is crooked. 
Sin has thrown everything out of joint, and in consequence, confusion abounds all around us. A deceitful heart, a wicked world, and a subtle devil ever make, ever seek to lead us astray and compass our destruction. How necessary it is then for God to direct my paths. What is meant by he shall direct thy paths? It means he will make clear to me the course of duty. God's will always lies in the path of duty and never runs counter to it. Much needless uncertainty would be spared if only this principle were recognized. When you feel a strong desire prompting to shirk a plain duty, you may be assured it is a temptation from Satan and not the leading of the Holy Spirit. For example, it is contrary to God's revealed will for a woman to be constantly attending meetings to the neglect of her children and home. It is shirking his responsibility for a husband to get off alone in the evenings, even in a religious exercise, and leave his tired wife to wash the dishes and put the children to bed. It is a sin for a Christian employee to read the scriptures or speak to people about their souls during business hours. The difficulty arises when it appears we have to choose between two or more duties, or when some important change has to be made in our circumstances. There are many people who think they want to be guided by God when some crisis arrives or some important decision has to be made. But few of them are prepared to meet the requirements intimated in the scriptures. The fact is that God was rarely in their thoughts before the emergency arose. Pleasing him did not exercise them while things were going smoothly. But when difficulty confronts them when they are at their wits' end on how to act, they suddenly become very pious, turn to the Lord, earnestly asking him to direct them and make his way plain. But God cannot be imposed upon in any such manner. Usually such people make a rash decision and bring themselves into still greater difficulties. Then they attempt to console themselves with, Well, I sought God's guidance. God is not to be mocked like that. If we ignore his claims on us when the sailing is pleasant, we cannot count upon him to deliver us when the storm comes. The one we have to do with is holy, and he will not set a premium upon godlessness called by many carelessness, even though we howl like beasts when in anguish. Hosea 7.14 On the other hand, if we diligently seek grace to walk with God day by day, regulating our ways by his commandments, then we may rightly count upon his aid in every emergency that arises. But how is the conscientious Christian to act when some emergency confronts him? Suppose he stands at the dividing of the ways. Two paths, two alternatives are before him, and he does not know which to choose. What must he do? First, let him heed that most necessary word, which as a rule of general application is ever binding upon us. He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 to act from a sudden impulse never becomes a child of God, and to rush ahead of the Lord is sure to involve us in a painful consequence. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation or deliverance of the Lord. Lamentations 3:25 and 26. 
To act in haste generally means that afterward we repent at leisure. How much each of us needs to beg the Lord to daily lay his quieting hand upon our feverish flesh. Second, ask the Lord for him to empty your heart of every wish of your own. It is impossible for us to sincerely pray, Thy will be done until our own will has, by the power of the Holy Spirit, been brought into complete subjection to God. So long as there is a secret but real preference in my heart, my judgment will be biased. While my heart is really set upon the attainment of a certain object, then I only mock God when I ask Him to make His way plain, and I am sure to misrepresent all His providences, twisting them to fit my own desire. If an obstacle is in my path, I then regard it as testing of faith. If a barrier is removed, I at once jump to the conclusion that God is undertaking for me, when instead he may be testing on the eve of giving me up to my own heart's lust. Psalm 81.12 This point is of supreme importance for those who desire their steps to be truly ordered of the Lord. We cannot discern his best for us while the heart has its own preference. Thus it is imperative to ask God to empty our hearts of our personal preferences, to remove any secret set desire of our own. But often it is not easy to take this attitude before God, the more so if we are not in the habit of seeking grace to mortify the flesh. By nature each of us wants his own way and chafes against every curb placed upon it. Just as a photographic plate must be blank if it is to receive a picture upon it, so our hearts must be free from personal bias if God is to work in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. If you find that as you continue to wait upon God, the inward struggle between the flesh and the spirit continues, and you have not reached the point where you can honestly say, have thine own way, Lord, then a season of fasting is in order. Ezra 8.21 then, then I proclaimed a fast there, that we might afflict ourselves before our God to seek of him the, a right way for us and for our little ones. This is written for our instruction, and even a glance at it shows it is pertinent. Nor is fasting a religious exercise peculiar to Old Testament times. Acts 13.3 records that before Barnabas and Saul were sent forth on their missionary journey by the church at Antioch, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. There is nothing meritorious in fasting, but it expresses humility of soul and earnestness of heart. The next thing is to humbly and sincerely acknowledge to God our ignorance and request Him not to leave us to ourselves. Tell him frankly that you are perplexed and do not know what to do, but plead before him his own promise and ask him for Christ's sake to make it good to you. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giving to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. James 1, 5-6 Ask him to grant the wisdom you need so much that you may judge rightly, that you may discern clearly what will promote your spiritual welfare and therefore be most for his glory. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. 
Psalm 35, seven, excuse me, Psalm 37, verse 5. In the interval, if you go to fellow Christians for advice, most probably no two will agree, and their discordant counsel will only confuse. Instead of looking to man for help, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Colossians 4.2 Be on the lookout for God's answer. Mark attentively each movement of his providence, for as a straw in the air indicates which way the wind is blowing, so the hand of God may often be discerned by a spiritual eye in what are trifling incidents to others. And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that then thou shalt bestir thyself, for then shall the Lord go out before thee. Second Samuel 5.24 Finally, Remember that we need not only light from the Lord to discover our duty in particular cases, but when that has been obtained, we need His presence to accompany us so that we may be enabled to rightly follow the path He bids us go. Moses realized this when he said to the Lord, If thy presence not go with me, carry us not up hence. Exodus 33.15 If we do not have the presence of God with us in an undertaking, His approval upon it, His assistance in it, His blessings upon it, then we find it a snare, if not a curse to us. As a general rule, it is better for us to trouble our minds very little about guidance. That is God's work. Our business is to walk in obedience to Him day by day. As we do so, these works within us, as we do, their works within us, a prudence which will preserve us from all serious mistakes. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. Psalm 119, verse 100. The man who keeps God's precepts is endowed with a wisdom which far surpasses that possessed by the sages of the learned philosophers. Unto the upright there ariseth light in the darkness. Psalm 112, verse 4. The upright man may experience his days of darkness, but when the hour of emergency arrives, light will be given him by God. Serve God with all your might today, and you may calmly and safely leave the future with him. A duteous conformity to what is right will be followed by luminous discernment of what would be wrong. Seek earnestly to get the fear of God fixed in your heart, so that you tremble at his word. Isaiah 66.2 and are really afraid to displease him. What man is he which feareth the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way that he should, he shall choose. Psalm 25:12. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Job 28:28. 28, 28. Then shall we know if we follow on to know the Lord. Hosea 6:3. The more we grow in grace, the fuller our knowledge will be of God's revealed will. The more we cultivate the practice of seeking to please God in all things, the more light we will have for our paths. The pure in heart shall see God, Matthew 5, 8. If our motive is right, our vision will be clear. The integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of transgressors shall destroy them, Proverbs 11, 3. The upright man will not willingly and knowingly go aside into crooked paths. The honest heart is not bewildered by domineering lust nor blinded by corrupt motives. Having a tender conscience, he possesses keen spiritual discernment. But the crooked policy of the wicked involves them in increasing trouble and ends in their eternal ruin. 
The righteous of the perfect, sincere, shall direct his way, but the wicked shall fall by his own wickedness. Proverbs 11.5 An eye single to God's glory delivers from those snares in which the ungodly are taken. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Proverbs 28.5 Unbridled passions becloud the understanding and pervert the judgment until men call good evil and evil good. Isaiah 5.20 But he who seeks to be subject to the Lord shall be given discretion. The Lord shall direct thy paths. First by his word, not in some magical way so as to encourage laziness, like, nor like consulting a cookbook full of recipes for all occasions, but by warning us of the byways of sin and making known the paths of righteousness and blessing. Second, by his spirit, giving us strength to obey the precepts of God, causing us to wait patiently on the Lord for direction, enabling us to apply the rules of holy writ to the various duties of our lives, bringing to our remembrance a word in due season. Third, by his providences, causing friends to fail us so that we are delivered from leaning upon the arm of flesh, thwarting our carnal plans so that we are preserved from shipwreck, shutting doors which would not be good for us to enter, and opening doors before us which none can shut. This ends tape number eight of The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. Please go to the next tape in the series. Thank you. This Reformation Audio Resource is production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources as well as SWRB's complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone 780-450-3730, fax at 780-468-1096, by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you have a web connection, please send an email to add at S swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. This book, The Attributes of God by A.W. Pink, is available from Stillwater's Revival Books in softcover format at a discount in our A to Z author listings. Please don't forget to look over the 62 CDs that make up our Reformation and Puritan bookshelf CD set. If you visit our website at swrb.com, as these CDs are a great way to build a major reform library at a fraction of the cost of the printed books.